You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 60, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with David Ryan Polgar, three-time TEDx speaker and tech writer. David is known for his work in exploring the impact of tech from an ethical, legal, and emotional perspective. You can find out more about David at davidpolgar.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome David Ryan Polgar to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with David Ryan Polgar, you'll hear him mention how when he was asked recently by LinkedIn to grant permission to connect to a few hundred people, probably everyone on his contact list, you know, he stopped and thought about what's really in this for me and what's in it for LinkedIn. And I really appreciate that. And for today's tip, want to expand on this and suggest that you set your intention that whenever you're asked for permission for something by an app or a website, particularly a request for information, whether it be in a poll or a survey or just a box where you click yes to grant access to your address book or your calendar or anything else, set your intention to pause and stop and ask yourself a couple of questions. One, what's in it for me? What am I getting out of this? You may not know. It's so easy to tap or click on yes, just to move forward, we can all do that reflexively without even thinking, maybe without even remembering that we've done it. So the suggestion is to pause and ask, what am I getting out of this? You may realize that sometimes you're not even getting anything obvious out of granting permission. But my suggestion goes beyond that, which is that even if you do realize that you're getting something positive out of this, don't stop there. Ask yourself, is there anything negative that will come out of this for me. Maybe uh, granting information to a company that I'd rather keep private, giving information about people I know that I'd rather not give away. And then ask, and David mentions this as well, this can be the harder one to think about. What's in it for the company or the person asking me for permission? Very often these requests are phrased in a way that emphasizes what's in it for you. They might say, Click on yes to proceed and get access to a whole bunch of wonderful things where the emphasis is on how great this is going to be for you. But you know that when someone or some organization is asking you for permission, there's something in it for them. It may not be evil or pernicious. (laughs) It may be something you're totally fine with. But I'm suggesting that you pause and ask yourself what's in it for the other party just so that you can become aware of what is in it for the other side. And then you can make an informed decision about whether to move forward. And that decision may be to click yes or proceed or okay and and give the other party what they're asking for. But at least you'll have done that in an informed, conscious way. And the last point is that if you can't think of what might possibly be in it for the other side, maybe you should pause and delay in responding because there's got to be something in it for them. And if you're not aware of what that is, It might be something you don't want to give to them, and maybe it's better to wait until you can figure out what is in it for the other side before you click OK. That's my suggestion. I think you're really going to enjoy the upcoming conversation with David Ryan Polgar, where we'll touch on all different kinds of aspects of digital wellness and 
how we as users of technology and how developers of technology can help move technology in a direction that's more healthy and productive for all of us. Hi, David, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really, really glad to be here, Robert. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. And, you know, we chatted a little bit beforehand and you were mentioning that you basically have an ancient history in the tech and and ethics uh, world by being being really involved in it since at least 2012. Yes. You know, which is quite a long time in, in Internet time. It's probably more than dog years. And I've so, noticed that, yeah, now after, you know, Cambridge Analytica and a few other kind of aspects, and now that Google is talking about digital wellness, a lot more people will come up to me and say, Oh, David, I now I get what you've been talking about. <laughs> That's right, yeah. so, uh, it's a bit, I do I appreciate that. So some, sometimes the mistakes by uh, big tech has led to growing awareness, which I guess is a, a, a side benefit. So Yeah, I mean, I don't even know that people knew, yeah, we're using the term digital wellness more yes. than a few years ago would even understand what you might mean by that. I am curious, maybe you could start by saying, given that you have been in this world for so long, what motivated you to do it? And maybe what were some of the challenges at that point when you were a loner? <laughs> sure. Yeah. What actually motivated me is, uh, I'd say probably about 2010. That's when the article in the Atlantic magazine is Google making making us stupid came out and uh, was, was highly influential on, on myself and, and others to kind of say, wow, what is what is the, the web doing to our brain? It can be a net positive, but at the same time, uh, what are some of the negative externalities? How does it affect the human condition? How does it affect how I learn and connect with others? All right, those are really big questions. And I started noticing that at uh, this time, as, a, as an attorney and educator, everything that I was reading and, and writing and doing outside of my day job dealt with the impact of technology. And I noticed that outside of academia, right, you have people like Sherry Turkle out of MIT who've been focused on this for 20 some odd years. Outside of academia, uh, there weren't a lot of people kind of in the mainstream type of atmosphere that were really, really talking about this. And I, and I thought there was a dramatic kind of, kind of need. So I kind of said, hey, I, I want to make this my, my life's work, right? Uh, but what really kind of did it in for me, especially when you're talking about uh, something like digital wellness or, or digital well-being, is in about 2011 or 2012, I went to jury duty. And like everybody, right, it's kind of a boring time. You're saying, ah, oh, geez, mm-hmm. are they going you know, to use me? What, what am I doing here? Right? You're, you're waiting mm-hmm. for a long period of time. What was happening is my, my phone kept on ringing and vibrating, and I would reach into my pocket to, to grab my phone, and then I noticed, wait, there's no, there's no phone in there, right? So I was re- <laughs> reaching for this, this phantom vibration, and yes. as I was, was sitting there uh, for hours without my phone, but yet my phone was ringing, mm. I said, well, that's, that's very unusual, right? So like any digital person of the 21st century, uh, as soon as I got home, I Googled my symptoms and I said, well, w- what's this all about, right? You know, wh- why am I having these phantom vibrations? And it turned out that uh, at that time, uh, Pew Research had just done some specific you know, studies on this topic of phantom vibrations and have found that upwards of two thirds of Americans have experienced at some point in time, this phantom vibrations. And for me, that was a pivotal moment to say, my God, if all of a sudden our, our smartphone is as important to us as a limb, right? So when you lose your limb, you have these phantom limbs. If our smartphone can impact us in, in such a profound manner, that's a major thing, right? So 
our smartphones are, are, are more important than just saying, how can we be more productive? How can we be more efficient? That's kind of a low hanging fruit in, in terms of the importance of humanity. But there's, that's why I like to think of it as like a high low issue. On one hand, yeah, you can focus on that, but you can also focus on, well, how does the smartphone affect how I live and love and learn and even die? Mm. It's impacting the, the human condition. And that's huge. It was at that time that I said, I, you know, I really want to want to focus on that. How can I do some more writing and speaking on this? Somebody reached out and seen some of my writing. And I wrote a, a short uh, ebook at the time called Wisdom in the Age of Twitter. And that led a few mm-hmm. other folks to kind of reach out. And I uh, got offered to do a TEDx uh, talk in 2013 on the topic specifically of digital well, well-being. And uh, I was kind of putting forward an idea of a quote unquote, mental food plate. The idea is that we have a food plate for how we consume food, right? As something that went from finite to to infinite and then led to kind of a struggle. And I kind of saw this as very analogous to what was happening with our information consumption, that information was going from finite and and, and now this, you know, extremely rare resource to now feeling infinite at our our fingertips. And, And Likewise, we were struggling to to adjust to that and that mentally we kind of work like hunger, hunger, hippo, where we're just gobbling up whatever information we see out there. But we were kind of gaining proverbial mental weight, if if you will. And the premise of that was that over time, you're going to see kind of a rise of a diet and exercise industry, so to speak, for digital wellness. And I think that has kind of proven the case as you you've seen the rise of of something like like Headspace and Calm and others that uh, really serve as a counterweight to this. Uh, and then one, one thing else that I've noticed over the years is that we've shifted a lot of our attention from focusing primarily on an individual usage before, and I'd say about 2012, 2013, when people were talking about digital diets and, and digital detoxes, things of that nature, we really focused on saying, okay, it's an individual problem. It's my fault for feeling overwhelmed. So how can I, how can I solve that? How can I put away my smartphone? How can I create you know, tech-free spaces and, and Zen zones and things like that? But now I've really seen the, the conversation switch over to saying, well, it's a little more nuanced than that because it's not just me against my smartphone. It's me against a multi-billion dollar company that has a uh, really strong interest to have me glued to my smartphone if their business model is based on the amount of time that I spend, the time equaling more ads shown and because they're ad-based models on the free but not free type of social platforms that, that are, you know, the norm, that can be problematic in terms, of, in terms of incentive. And also around that time, I met and started doing some work with Dr. David Greenfield of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction. And Dr. Greenfield is actually uh, the individual who, who popularized the dopamine connection in the brain with tech use uh, and had been around talking about this since the late 90s. And I think that's what a lot of people don't really kind of back up and and fully kind of take into consideration is that the issue of tech over overuse and, and how we balance this has actually been around since since about the late 90s. It was Dr. Dave Greenfield and also Kimberly Young came up around the same time talking about this. And that's where a lot of the, the phrases such as like the uh, slot machine idea that, that seems to be pretty popular right now actually derives from about the late 90s. So it's been a long, long time uh, that the, the topic's been kind of bandied about. And I think now, though, it's, it's really coming to focus to say it's a societal issue. It's not an individual issue. It's a societal issue in the sense that how do we balance the incentives that platforms have? How can, how can they maybe change some of their business models? What tools can, can assist users? 
what's the individual's decisions and, and ability to affect their environment. How do individuals interact with family members and friends, uh, which, which has an impact on their own kind of digital well-being? Yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot there. Well, thank, I feel like you just took us through a history <laughs> of the whole digital well-being space or movement that's really helpful for me and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners to hear about where we've come from. As you said, now it is much more common for people to be focusing on what we can do collectively and what we can be doing to influence tech companies. But, you know, that's fairly recent. I mean, it seems to me like certainly around the time of the U.S. election, that had a lot of influence on people looking at the tech companies more collectively, not necessarily because of, uh, you know, men personal well-being, but for other. Before that, it seemed to me like if people were focusing on it at all, it was from that individual perspective you mentioned. What can I do? you know, to change my behavior, get control myself more, so to speak. But And this is why the food analogy actually does hold up pretty well to our information consumption or our smartphone use, because that's very similar or analogous to, to how food has evolved and our relationship with food has, has evolved, right? It's not a black or white issue. So I love when people talk about digital wellness and they, they always start off by saying, but I'm not a Luddite and I have an iPhone and I have this and that and I have a Twitter account. Or people start saying, well, isn't it ironic that you're posting on Twitter about uh, smartphone use? And no, nobody, nobody, no. nobody cares about that because here's why. It's a nuanced issue. Let's say you are a personal trainer, right? So you obviously care about your health and you care about your wellness. If that personal trainer is all of a sudden, you know, out, you see them out and they're eating like a burger and fries. You'd say, okay, well, they're just, they're consuming a burger and fries. You wouldn't say, my God, isn't it ironic that a personal trainer, right? right. The idea that <laughs> you can have a nuanced relationship with food, which we do, and we have a nuanced relationship with tech. It's, it's complicated. It's complicated in the sense that we're trying to extract from it something that benefits our life. And it's the same thing we're trying to do with, with food, right? We, we desire it, but at the same time, we realize how it can be abused or how it can affect us in, 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 in ways that, that are adverse, uh, what we can do about that. So uh, it, it's going to be a long, uh, it's going to be kind of a long kind of di discussion, I, you know, I think, uh, I think with this. And then also with food, we used to view it as a personal decision. Hey, you know, you just need to stop eating as, as much, right? And it's all about you. Whereas then we started saying, yeah, but what are the, what are the food, Right. manufacturers doing? What are their role in in notifying us what's in the food? Is there a point where maybe it's not good to put too much fat on, on, on certain food? Or maybe we need to have restaurants labeled or, you know, or calorie counts and things like that. So again, think about how that has dramatically altered over the years. And, and likewise, you're, you're seeing the same thing with, with tech. So I know a lot of people always get surprised with it, but it's like, no, that's that's what we're, we're always doing. We're, we're trying to say we need to be able to make an informed decision about our food. And likewise, we need to be able to make an informed decision about our tech that we're consuming. And one of the struggles that I think a lot of people have is they might not naturally know what's in their technology, right? And I think that's the the key part kind of moving forward. Maybe you could give some examples of things that people don't know about are in their technology or behind the development of technology that might be equivalent to a calorie count that that may influence their behavior if they did know. 
Yeah. I mean, this is where it kind of gets into the uh, quote unquote attention economy that has, I think, probably really been popularized by the Center for Humane Technology. And before that, right, which kind of evolved from the time well spent movement. Uh, a lot of people know the work of people like Tristan Harris and others uh, at the at this center. A lot of that is is focused around the uh, original sin, if you will, of of a lot of the the uh, social media platforms, which is based on saying that instead of charging kind of this upfront cost, which which you might be used to for let's say a subscription to something, we're going to have the platform as free, uh, which allows more people to download it freely. But the the downside is since the money is not coming up front, it needs to come more from the back end. And that generally is done through an ad-based model where the platforms would have a very strong incentive to keep you on the platform longer and longer, right? That's always going to affect kind of certain decisions. And I think a big part of what consumers aren't always cognizant of is how are these decisions made and, and, and when are the best interest, you know, being made for you versus when is there something else at, at play? I'll give you an example. It's, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and they com- constantly come up in this conversation or, or, or YouTube. But what I like to think about is, is something like LinkedIn, because it seems so benevolent and, and, and boring. Here's the kicker, right, is that one of the, the tricky parts that I think happens is that You always just assume that a decision that is being prompting you towards certain behavior is going to be for your benefit, but obviously it's it's not. So I I remember a few months ago on uh, LinkedIn, kind of sent me a little little notification, and it basically said something to the extent of, "Hey, if you click this little button here, you can instantly add." It was was somehow upwards of like I think I think at the time like three hundred seventy eight people. It's like, well, wait a minute. What's the, that benefit to them versus what's the benefit to me? Is there a natural benefit to me to to have such a hyper connectivity that might then dilute the kind of one on one that I might be able to have to build a stronger rapport? Or are they focused on increasing the total amount of connections that they might have and being able to extract kind of data? Or another part is on LinkedIn, you always see something to the extent of. Hey, you know, it's 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 telling people congrats, uh, giving them congratulations on their new job, and and then giving them prompts, and here's here's a sentence you can kind of say. And what I find really in- intriguing about that is that's because there's a strong interest from from LinkedIn's perspective to say the more people communicate, the more time they're spending on the platform, the more time they're spending on the platform, the more ads they see, the more ads they see, the more money is being made off the platform, right? But the tricky part is, at what point does that get in the way of my own desires of how I would communicate, right? So I actually have a desire for the person who's writing me to be thoughtful about the, how they're writing me. I have a desire for them not to spam me. I have a desire for them not to use autocomplete. But see, this is where it's a, it's a conflict, is that LinkedIn as a platform has a strong incentive to say, hey, the more I can get people to converse, the better. Whereas I have a desire to say, the more I can connect with that person on a true level that is meaningful, the more value I can extract from from LinkedIn. Mm. So that's where, if we kind of just back up from it, the big discussion is, are our desires from what we want from LinkedIn and from Facebook and from Twitter and from Snap and from YouTube, is that different than the 
desires that the platforms have and, and how they are connecting you. And I, and I think YouTube is, is probably even a, a stronger, more extreme example that uh, in recent months, we've had a lot of focus on their recommendation algorithms. Because from a usage standpoint, we know that the more time you spend on a platform, the more money that, that YouTube and owned by Google and by Alphabet uh, would make. But the problem is they also know that people spend more time on salacious videos. People spend more time on videos that might be conspiracy theories. So that would mean, unfortunately, that YouTube had a very strong financial incentive to promote video viewing that from a societal level is actually bad for democracy. So what I mean by that is if they're promoting a video that is stickier, so to speak, that more people will watch and spend more time on, they make more money because more ads are seen. And we know that people gravitate towards salacious content. But at the same time, that's bad for society. So at what point does Google, YouTube say, wait a minute, how we operate, the, the values of the company should be aligned with larger aspects. And I think that's been the classic struggle that we've, we've had. Uh, and I think why it throws off a lot of consumers uh, or users, if you will, is that we always just view technology as very agnostic. And, and also we viewed it as naturally aligned with being good for society. And, and I think now we're starting to say, Okay, it doesn't have to be the opposite, and it can be beneficial to society, and it should be. But at the same time, that might not naturally happen without prodding because there's a lot of strong financial incentives that might get in the way of that. And, and I think that's where laws and, and, and promoting kind of guardrails and, and discussion around this is actually really important because it's something we've always known. Uh, there's a part of the uh, Federalist papers that I always like to bring up, right? The paraphrase where they basically say, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Yes. So the very idea of, of government, of, of any structure, is because people will not always do the right thing. Maybe if you send it to, to companies. So likewise, I think that's why there's a lot more discussion this year about new regulation that, that might be needed uh, because, because we're starting to say, okay, it doesn't have to be all negative, but at the same time, we want to pr promote strong financial incentives to do the right thing. And uh, we know that that laws can prod people towards their, their better angels. Yeah, I mean, you raised so many uh, interesting issues. This last one, and now you and I both uh, found that we were both lawyers and so we're very attuned to this issue. And of course, it is a uh, going back to the founding of the country, if not earlier, a strong tension between the idea of letting regulation versus the market versus the states versus individuals, you know, make these kinds of choices. And it's, and it's it is far from agreed on or decided, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a constant. But I really appreciate I appreciate your pointing out that the agreement that we should have a rule of law at all means we have some shared understanding that that law is not a bad thing necessarily. And that sometimes the word regulation is used to attach a negative connotation to what you otherwise might just think of as a law. Exactly. Exactly. We wouldn't have to have a law against, uh, you know, <laughs> murder if people didn't murder people. Right. So, so likewise, this is the big thing that, that, 
people are talking about lately is that, wait a minute, do we need a national law around data privacy and, and, and data usage? Because yeah, we're trying to do state by state and California just, you know, is talking about one, but maybe we need it on a, on a national level. And yeah, I, w- I would agree uh, to, to a certain extent because I think what we've realized is that uh, this all actually comes down to, down to power. And it's not always as simple as saying that, hey, do tech companies have too much power? I mean, that could be true. But at the same time, I think what's what's also being lost from the conversation is that the average person who's using technology does not have enough power. They don't have enough power to make the decisions about whether they consent to something, right? They, it's not enough power for them to say, read the terms of service. Oh, yes. Let me back up, Robert. Let me think. I want a 13-year-old who I'm trying to get to eat their broccoli. I want to say to them, why don't you read a legal document that nobody reads? They did a study on that uh, a couple of years ago, right? A UConn study. And they found that in a hypothetical where they had participants uh, signing up for a fake social media company platform, 90% of those participants gave away their firstborn child. They gave away their firstborn child because they don't read the terms of service. So we know that. I bring that up because that the terms of service part has been a case in point of us finally calling BS on it and to say, yeah, that was an onus that we were putting on the general public, but it, that's not a fair balance of power because it's not enough to say, well, you clicked it. You don't have to use Facebook. Well, actually, you kind of do because right. what's their competitor, right? So a lot of those arguments that people have been making for a couple of years of saying, well, you didn't, you didn't have to agree to it or you should have read the terms of service. That's a ridiculous argument because, because even the terms of service says that the terms of service can change at any, any time. Uh, and we know people don't read them. And again, there's no adequate competition that would normally under our kind of, you know, understanding of, of how we structure our kind of business models uh, would incentivize you know, competition and to move away some of these these bad incentives for, for some of the platforms. Yeah, and it makes me realize that with certain types of businesses, and social media is one of them, where you have strong network effects. And, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with that, what that means is as the number of users grows who's connected, the value becomes uh, becomes exponentially greater. Those kinds of industries tend to narrow down to a single company or maybe a very small handful of them. And it just makes it harder for anyone to come in after the fact to become a competitor. Because I've often thought, well, you know, maybe the answer to this is for there to be some alternative social networks that would have other business models. And I'm not saying this isn't possible. Maybe it still is possible. That would do something like charge a fee. Right. Uh, so that, it, uh, as you said, it's quote free to the user, but it's really not. Of course, there's a high cost to all it, but why not charge a fee? But it's just because of the nature of the market and the network, it would be extremely difficult for someone to create a competitor because everyone else is on Facebook. And how do you ramp up a competitor to Facebook? Same thing with eBay. It's not a social network, right? There, there were, I remember in the early days, lots of auction sites. And it very quickly narrowed down to eBay for the same reasons. If you want to sell something, you want to go where all the buyers of are. Of course, right? Why, why do you rob a bank? Because that's where the money is. Why do you go to Facebook? Because that's where your friends are, right? So like right. as much as you say, hey, let's start something like, oh, I don't know, Ello or, or you know, it, it's going to be hot for a week and then flop because everybody says, great, I love the idea. Let me go there. Wait a minute. My friends aren't here. 
why am I here? This is a graveyard. Let me leave. Right. That always happens. And, and that, that's kind of the point. Whereas this is the key part. And, you know, knowing a lot of people in the industry as well, a lot of them would desire uh, smart regulation. And the reason why is because don't forget, even from an industry perspective, it's all about the playing field, right? Is that kind of like uh, <laughs> what the problem of like baseball was a couple of years ago? Is that like if, if so many of the players were doing performance drugs, there was a stronger incentive for, for, a, for a player to do performance drugs because they'd say, well, wait a minute. Sammy Brooks and Barry Bonds, they're hitting like, they're, they're breaking up the American <laughs> record. What's, what's up? Like, who am I? And then because the playing field had, had changed. So the point is, if you create something like uh, a data privacy law, a national law, that basically says, here is the minimum standard that every company has to abide by. Here's what they cannot do. Here's how they cannot use your, your data. That offers a uh, strong level of protection. And, he, and here's why, right? Because a lot of times people, people act like, oh, where do we ever do this? We do this all the time. Because if I go to, let's, let's say I go to dinner tonight. Do I need to ask the restaurant, hey, guys, where'd you get your lettuce from? Can I inspect your tomatoes? Where did you get your meat from, right? Because guess what? We have a Food and Drug Administration. We have rules that set a baseline that allow us as a consumer to say, I feel comfortable when I'm in a restaurant that the food is safe. And I know that it's safe because we've created smart regulation and, and regulatory bodies to actually create a minimum standard because we knew that that was not something that an individual had the power to do on an individual basis. That I couldn't say, hey, let me read your terms of service about the cleanliness of your <laughs> of your restaurant. Wait, oh, I had to read the fine print to find out how many cockroaches you have, right? You wouldn't do something like that. And, and likewise, you wouldn't place the onus on, on an individual to say, you need to understand the intricacies of how your data is going to go around the interweb and how it can be used to a third party and what if that company gets sold. Like, this is really complicated stuff. Right. This is why the general user would feel a lot more comfortable if they knew that there was a baseline protection of saying, here's the deal with privacy, here's how data can be abused. We know this, therefore we're setting a baseline. And then for Facebook and for, for Google and for others, they would say, okay, if those are the rules and this is where it's a, doing a cost-benefit analysis, I would not do the wrong thing because doing the wrong thing would be bad from a financial decision. You then create the decisions that these companies are, are making. Mm -hmm. Because that's the irony that, that I always kind of find is that a lot of people say, wow, you know, look at all the, the, the bad things that a lot of these companies have done. But what's interesting about it is they're still highly profitable, Right. Which shows you that, that there must be something wrong with the system, because a lot of people might say, OK, let's say if you're talking about Facebook specifically. Oh, wait a minute. Like, right. man, if they did this differently towards our, our data privacy and towards our well-being. Well, unfortunately, the way <laughs> the way that it works is they might have actually been less profitable. Right. Like the, all the decisions that they made were saying, oh, those are bad decisions that they made years ago. But at the same time, those were extremely profitable decisions. Right. Therein lies the rub. That also means that there's a problem with our incentive structures and, and our safety precautions, because if Facebook had done things differently and said, OK, we're going to make our product less sticky, they might not be in the point that they're in today, where even getting a $5 billion fine, it seems like it has not impacted their total outlook and their stock price. 
Yeah. I want to get back to another point you mentioned earlier, which was, I think all of this is related, which is that the business model is driven by advertising primarily, or by collection of data, which drives advertising, or all of it, all of it's related to that. The product is given away, quote, for free to the end user. But what, what this all calls out is that I've sometimes asked people, who are Facebook's customers? And they say, well, we are. And no, you're not the customer because you're not paying Facebook. <laughs> Isn't that the definition of a customer, right? It's the customer is the advertisers and any other businesses who are making purchases from Facebook. And this is all what you're talking about and, you know, using law as an example. And you've also mentioned bringing information to users just to make them aware of this fact. Exactly. Well, and, and then, I, Robert, I just want to bring up a, another quick part that you mentioned, right? And this kind of ties in with our entire conversation. That's where early on, I knew that this was a major topic of, of future discussion, because think about it. In, in 2012, okay, you had the Civil Rights Act that would say, we need to protect against discrimination based on, from a federal level, uh, on race and national origin, and in most states, sexual orientation, political affiliation, things like that, immutable characteristics that, that we call them. But then, then I, I looked at what we were doing online right. and I said, wait a minute, everything that you can't do in a human resources standpoint, I can't ask how old this person is. I can't ask, uh, you know, what's their, what, what are their politics? I can't ask, uh, you know, uh, usually like, how much do you weigh and all these things. These are all the identifiable characteristics that you are putting in your Facebook profile, right? So I was like, well, wait a minute. This is bound to be a, a, a massive, a massive collision course. And then that's exactly what happened, right? Because then it was discovered that advertisers could hyper-target and say, we only want to advertise towards men. We only want to advertise towards men of this affiliation. We can base things on race and ethnicity. Exactly everything that, that, that for years this country fought against. And you say, well, that's going to be problematic. So one of the things... That, that I would like to say is that, you know, I think over the next couple of years, what we're going to be seeing is that there's going to be a lot more integration between our political structures and the tech industry. Mm. And there's going to actually have to be because we're realizing that uh, they're completely intertwined, is that uh, it's not just about, you know, selling us, you know, some, some type of gadget that we can either have or not have. It's, it's actually impacting, you know, the human condition, how we live, love, learn, and die. It impacts democracy. Uh, it impacts mental well-being. That's big. And that's, that's also something that uh, we don't just need a you know, tech solution. We need a societal solution. We need more kind of participation uh, and involvement with this. Yeah, and I know that you, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. I'd like you to tell people about just some of the efforts and organizations you're involved in, like All Tech is Human. Maybe you can tell people a little bit about that and how it works towards achieving these kinds of goals. Sure. Yeah, I run this organization uh, called All Tech is Human. If you go to alltechishuman.com, uh, you'll, you'll see all the information. What we are is uh, we're an organization that, that focuses on being a connector and catalyst for tech change. We try to bring together people to, again, say it's not just about a tech solution, it's about a societal solution. We're trying to make the process of how we develop and deploy technology a more inclusive, multidisciplinary, and participatory. As of right now, we started last year and said, hey, there's a need to connect people through these ethical tech summits. Uh, we held the first event. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, 
last March at a place called Grand Central Tech that's now called Company in Manhattan. Planned it a couple months in, in, in advance with, with a couple of people. We were focused on the business models of social media and how that was misaligned with the human interest of, of users. And then it just so happens that as it was, uh, you know, coming together and as people were signing up and stuff, Cambridge Analytica happened. And I was like, wow, well, there you go. This is right on target. It was also a good fortune that uh, one of the panelists that we had lined up was Lori Siegel from CNN, who just got off that uh, the interview that she did with, uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, the, the, the first and I think only one that was mm-hmm. kind of done post Cambridge Analytica. And then we just saw kind of a hunger to say, okay, well, how can we expand on this and bring more organizations and people together that are doing great work uh, in this space that might not know each other and, and could really kind of collaborate and, and increase knowledge sharing. Uh, so we held the first Ethical Tech Summit last October in New York. Went really well. And then we kind of expanded from there. So we just had an event a couple months ago in Seattle. And then we have one on September 21st in San Francisco. And then also one in November, November 9th in Manhattan. And then we're kind of expanding from there to to get into things like uh, we're creating a toolkit guide on, on thoughtful tech and the community in general and mapping together all the people and organizations that are that are focused on this, and then a few other ideas that we're, we're kind of working on in, in the pipeline. Uh, we also just formed a partnership with the United Nations Development Program that was looking at doing an ethical framework for their Accelerator Labs program that's used in uh, 78 countries, uh, and then a few other things that we're, we're doing as well. So yeah, would invite all your listeners, please reach out and, and, and join us uh, because we're trying to, trying to make good things happen because um, as, as dire as it can seem, I also get inspired daily by seeing the amount of people that are, that are focused on, on doing some incredible work in this space to say, okay, here's what I'm doing on digital wellness. Here's what I'm doing on changing, changing the laws. Here's what I'm doing on bringing people together. There's just so much energy going right now. So. Well, it's great. I mean, and when I, I, I really meant it when I said you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk, because, you know, you were mentioning earlier how uh, you've witnessed and been a part of the transition from focusing on what can individuals do to what can we do collectively. And I know that, you know, a big part of all Tech is Human's mission is to focus on changing how technology is developed and deployed. You know, it's not not putting the burden all on us as passive recipients of technology to say, well, what do we need to do to protect ourselves or change our own behavior against it? You actually believe and promote changes in how the technology is actually designed. You have to. And what I'll say is uh, I have a career that kind of spans all those different spaces. So a little bit of time kind of in academia and then you know, people in industry and, mm-hmm. and then people in like organizational leaders. And what I'll say is that I really noticed, and that's my pet peeve, I guess, is that there's not a natural integration or overlap between the two. So as much as we might think, for example, that industry knows what these these issues are and knows who's who, that's actually not always true because it, it tends to be a very closed off system. So even right now, given that there's still extremely strong tech clash, the one downside of that has been that it's actually made industry uh, more more apt to be very kind of to themselves. And I, and I think there's a downside to that because we also need to say, okay, how can we agree to disagree or, or how can we come together at the, at the same table and then discuss these, discuss these issues? Because what I love about what we're, we're doing with All Tech is Human and, and why I think uh, we're, we're onto something is that we're not actually 
constantly sharing knowledge. So you have a huge need. Uh, for example, one of the issues that I really focus on is mental well-being and technology, right? With, with suicide being one of the all-time highs and, you know, how is that going to be related to our increasing kind of tech use? Anyhow, there's such a need from an industry perspective to say, okay, well, then who are these researchers that are focused on this? How can we form advisory boards? But if I'm having an advisory board, who do I have on them? So it's the very idea that that's kind of my aha moment to say, okay, the tech we're creating has a dramatic impact on society at large. But you know what? It's being made by a small sliver of society that might not have that same experience or lived experience or perspective. So what I think is dramatically needed is to actually bring those groups together to, I like to say, you know, shine a, shine a light on these blind spots, right? The idea that even right now, we, we, we tend to focus so much attention on saying, okay, well, you know, here's, here's what Zuckerberg needs to do, or here's what this person needs to do. And I would say, well, okay, I get that. But here's the thing. I don't just want one person to have consolidated power and like it's all up to them. That's that's a benevolent uh, dictatorship, right? You wouldn't <laughs> want to say like I just hope this person does the right thing. That's a terrible setup. Who who's right. arguing this, right? No, you you want to you want to extend it to say we need more people involved in this process. We need more perspectives being being kind of shared. We shouldn't expect that. Okay, it's great to make let's say engineers more more ethical. That's good, but we also need to say okay, but we need to have more people who are involved in this process. And I'll just give you a, kind of a, a quick example of that. About a year ago, Google released their Google Duplex, and that was the virtual assistant that can make phone calls for you, make a haircut appointment, make a, a reservation for 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 food. And what I found fascinating about this is if you watch it, it's on YouTube, if you watch the video where they're doing the demo, the audience is like, they're like hooting and hollering. I think this is the greatest thing ever because they're like, sweet, we finally, we're going to pass the, the Turing test. Like our goal in life is to, is to get another human to think that they're talking to another human when it's, when it's AI. And yes, isn't that, isn't that intelligence? The general public, when they saw that, they had a completely different reaction. They said, okay, yes, the tech is cool, but guess what? I want to know if I'm talking to an AI. I want transparency. Wait a minute, is that disrespectful for me to spend my emotional energy adjusting to ums and ahs when in fact those ums and ahs are artificial? Is that disrespectful to me as a human? So the reaction was swift. And then instantly Google had to, to change course and say, oops, we screwed up. We need to be transparent. We need to change Google Duplex. But my point of this, this story is that how did that still happen, right? How did this happen where they still went through the whole process right. and then didn't say, hey, guys, this is a bad idea. And here's what's missing is that the tech is good, but we need transparency. We need to respect the, you know, the, the human on it. They were, they were only taking it from one angle. Where's just two, two different angles from it? So I think that's been... That's been kind of a major, major wake up call is that we're constantly showing that the process can be off. And then I think even earlier, another example with Google was the Google Glass, right? The augmented technology uh, on your on your eyes. And that was another part where you say, wait a minute, you're going to spend a ridiculous amount of money saying this is the next big thing. When the general public says this makes me feel uncomfortable in terms of how I interact with other people. Like, did you not talk to just like a bunch of other people, right? 
I don't, I don't want to be recorded in every moment of my life. And, and there was a lot of confusion. Well, wait a minute. I thought privacy is dead. No, privacy is dead. Long live privacy. We're nuanced about it. And the case in point was that if we look at those two, two examples, that is also very like echo chamber type of thinking. That's, that's very like, okay, all my friends agree with me. Therefore, everybody agrees with me. It also means that you need to have a wider circle of friends. And that's what all tech is human is, is trying to do to say, we need to challenge the system. And that's not a negative. It, it's, it's a positive because we realize the, the promise of technology to bring us closer and to break down barriers, right? That's the promise that person like, like me going through the high school when they're talking about the information superhighway to now saying it doesn't just naturally work out that way because we need to put those, those guardrails in on, on the road. <laughs> that it's not just, uh, you know, a natural kumbaya moment that we might be able to get to that moment, but that's only going to happen if we're smart and, and thoughtful about it. Well, this is super motivating to me, and I'm sure it will be motivating to people listening to anyone who's out there, particularly you know people who are tech designers, programmers, engineers, anyone in that world who you know is in a position maybe more than the the typical end user to influence how technology is designed to go and get in touch with you at All Tech is Human. Can you just let people know how to reach you at All Tech is Human and elsewhere and stay on top of everything you're doing and get involved? Definitely, yeah. Please reach out. You can go to uh, alltechishuman.com and then also my personal website. I do a bunch of speaking uh, throughout the United States and Europe and, and also looking to kind of expand outside of that. Uh, if you go to techethicist.com, you'll find me. And then I'm also on uh, social media channels like uh, like Twitter with the handle at techethicist. So please, yeah, drop me a line. Love to love to get in touch and then see what everybody else is doing. And then again, how, how we can kind of uh, build up together and, and, and better share resources and collaborate because I think there's a, a ton of opportunity about that. So just want to emphasize that is that as dire as it gets, uh, the future is bright. And, and I see that particularly with Altica Seaman, uh, especially with the amount of college students that actually uh, reach out. So uh, I've seen a huge sea change and I don't think media has caught up with that is that college students right now are, they're intimately focused on this issue and, and I think also more naturally nuanced about, about their approach. And they realize that uh, change is in the air and that they're, they're probably going to be those agents mm. of change. Really inspiring. Thanks so much, David. And thanks for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Robert. Bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, David Ryan Polgar, three-time TEDx speaker and tech writer. David is known for his work in exploring the impact of tech from an ethical, legal, and emotional perspective. You can find out more about David at davidpolgar.com and at alltechishuman.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. You'll also be able to find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with digital mindfulness retreat leader and expert, Christina Maleka. Christina Maleka.